Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Mark, and this is E3, and we are concluding the series today on Inverted, where we're going through the Beatitudes, which uh, simply means happiness comes to. And these are inverted ideas of how many of us think to achieve happiness. And we've gone through um, all eight of them, or we're finishing with the eighth one today is, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I just wanted to, uh, before we got into it, really just kind of lay the groundwork today, um, just talk a little bit about my, my humanness and and just my desire to get as close to the heart and mind of God as I, I possibly can. And in order to do that, sometimes uh, we have to go against cultural grains, that we have to uh, venture into areas that may be sacred to us or, or hold very, very dearly or may even come up against some of our... our uh, our uh, presupposed kind of ideas or, or beliefs. And I guess as I enter uh, into today, as we, we talk about this idea or this, this reality, really, of persecution, I'm just going to ask you to understand that, that I am one follower of Christ, trying to follow Jesus as best I can, digging into Scripture and trying to find God's will and heart and mind on this. Uh, I am not an authority. I am uh, not, uh, you know, all-knowing or seeing or anything like that. You know, it's just, uh, this is one person. Um, and the what's most important to me is hopefully that today out of this conversation, that more conversations will happen. And hopefully that we can we can be adults and understand that we are not looking for political or even religious solutions, but we are trying to find God's heart and mind on a very difficult subject, and that is persecution. So if you open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I taught on verse 6, which was, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. And if you remember those words, hunger and thirst was uh, our metaphors for just hurting so much because you want justice for people, that you want them to experience rightness with God. Now, in verse 10, it's very interesting that, that Jesus goes on to say, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And this word justice in verse 6, and the word doing right in verse 10 are actually the same word that Jesus used, and that is dikasune. And that word means doing right and justice. That means righteousness. Now, if you look at the kind of the progression of thought that Jesus is bringing to the, his listeners, including us, this, these steps that God blesses, oh, people are happy who hunger and thirst, they hurt so much that, they, that when people are not experiencing right relationship with God and, and people. 
And then he goes on in that idea that, that, you know what? God makes happy those who are even persecuted for making the world right, creating environments that people can have a right relationship with their God and their people. And he goes on to say, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And a lot of times I think that we think, oh, heaven is just this far off place. But God is creator of the heavens and the earth. God is creator of everything. And, and when we talk, or when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about some far off place. He's talking also about the here and now. Now, persecution, according to Webster, um, is hostility or ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. So persecution, quite simply, is hostility, ill treatment, because of your beliefs or your, your uh, political party or something like that. Now, if you were to take out your phone, which you don't have to do, but I'm going to, and you Googled, went to the Google, Christian persecution, <clears throat> and went to the news section, there's been an increased kind of trending of, of, this, of this. I just want to read you some headlines. Uh, these are just the first ones that come up. This one was four hours ago, came up. Sudan, one year since Miriam Ibrahim uh, sentenced. That was the woman who uh, was considered an apostate, and she was sentenced to 40 lashes and death, if you remember, uh, because she converted from Islam to Christianity. And uh, the world spoke out, and she's alive today. Uh, let's see. GOP Congresswoman warns of Christian persecution in America. And then I read that article. It goes on to say that she could not even cite a single um, occurrence of it. Today, I'm going to cite a couple of occurrences of it. Next one. Here's what you can do about the persecution of Christians. Here's another one from the Indianapolis Star. A little perspective, please, on Christian persecution. And then I'm going to finish with this one. This is uh, from the Catholics. Uh, uh, beyond powerlessness over anti-Christian persecution. The Catholics have uh, really been on the forefront of, of per, per, uh, Christian persecution throughout the, the world. And they've actually, a lot of the news that we have heard about the persecution in, uh, coming out of Nigeria and ISIS and in China are coming from the Catholic Church. And I'm not sure why that is, except perhaps the Catholic Church has a as an organization has a larger perspective on the history of Christianity and what persecution looks like. I think that this conversation is, is really difficult for us because we have a natural barrier between us and what's happening around the world. As far as, as Christian persecution happens in America, that, that admittedly it is very, very mild compared to what's happening in other places of the world. 
But that doesn't mean that, that what we're experiencing is always going to be the same. And I think that one of my burdens as, as a pastor is to uh, be a watchman sometimes and to sound the alarm and to historically look at different times of persecution, not only of the Christian faith, but, but of the Jewish faith and, and other people's faith and see how persecution comes out and how it lays out. And the reality is that in America, persecution is coming and it is here. And I think that this is important to realize so we don't isolate ourselves from our other brothers and sisters around the world, but that we are able to connect with them and that we will unite as one voice under Christ to, to speak out against these injustices, that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only in America, but throughout the world, and that you know what, when we experience persecution, that we will understand that we are being persecuted for doing right, for being part of righteousness. Now, Jesus continues in verse 11 and says this, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers, okay? So God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things about you. Now, I've heard people say, you know, like, oh, you know, all of these things are happening to me, and, and, and I, I'm being persecuted. But a lot of times that I, I find that we miss the second part, and it's because we are followers of Jesus, that God blesses when we are on the path of righteousness. God blesses us when we are being mocked and persecuted, when we are being the ambassadors of Jesus to, be, to help people have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people. In verse 12, he says, Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great award, reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. I think that this is one of the key factors that we need to understand as we count the cost of what it means to follow Christ. That the myth of following Christ is somehow an easy path is probably one of the greatest lies that has ever been perpetrated on, on people. That following Jesus is not easy. In fact, there is a long history of people who are on the path to righteousness and who are working toward making a right relationship, an environment that has a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people, that they are persecuted. Jesus finishes his Beatitudes by saying this, that the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way, in, this, in a sense that we should expect it. If you are relentlessly pursuing the heart and mind of God, we should expect to be persecuted. And if there's an absence of persecution, if, if our faith is costing us nothing, then we should ask ourselves the question, why? 
Why am I not getting any pushback? In Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Luke writes, Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. Luke's going on to saying, name one. Name one guy or gal who stood up for the cause of righteousness and was not persecuted. You can't name one. Because the world, the world's beatitudes, path to happiness of power, wealth, control, is in direct opposition with the servanthood and fulfillment and giving nature and generosity of God. That the world wants to be God. In fact, arguably that is one of the, is the first sin of humanity. When, the, when Satan came and whispered in the ear of Adam and Eve, what? Eat this fruit and... You'll be like God. And when we want to be like God, when we want power and control and we want all of these things, that we are in the world. We are of the world. And Jesus is saying, invert these ideas. Invert these ideas. But be warned when you invert these ideas that you will be in direct opposition with the world's thinking. Jesus says it this way in John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Remember as a follower of Christ, we're following in Jesus' footsteps. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than a master. Since they persecute me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they, have listened, if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So I think that this idea of, of, of persecution is pretty well established in Scripture. They, from Jesus to the prophets to, to the disciples, that they again and again state that, you know what, those of us on this path will experience persecution. I think the, the issue for us, especially those of us who, who live uh, in America, is this isolation from, from persecution in a sense of overt persecution that leads in, in being arrested or death. But I think it's important to look historically that there are stages to persecution. In fact, when you look at every people group that, that have been persecuted that have led up to genocide, the Jews, the Armenians, um, 
the Christians in, in, in China, again and again and again, it is the same six steps of progression that lead to genocide. Now, not every time does it lead to genocide, but there are six different steps. And they've been tried and, they've been, and they're true. And I want to share these with you. The first stage of persecution, and this is true of the Jews and the Armenians and, and every group that has been persecuted, is stereotyping. Stereotyping. That, that those people are like this. That, that you group everyone together. And Christians have done it with homosexuality. That, that uh, in some cases we've done it with Islam. And, and you know what? And it's been done to us. That this is not just one group. That, that we have all, as people, hum, humans, that all sorts have, have engaged in these six steps. But I am a Christian pastor, so I'm going to be specifically talking about persecution of Christians because I think it's important that we understand the environment that we live in. Stereotypes. What are some stereotypes of Christians in, in America? You can just yell it out. What? Bullhorn. Critical. Fundamentalist. Bigotry. Fundamentals. Judgmental. Intolerant. Relevant Magazine recently ran an article about stereotypes of Christians, and, and on my pastor, author, Facebook page, I'll be posting these, uh, these links if you're interested. But this is a stereotype that they came up with. Christians are white Southerners who hate Obama and refuse to believe in science. They're judgmental and hypocritical. They act like they're better than anyone else, everyone else but have the same divorce rate as non-Christians. That's Relevant Magazine's stereotype that they, that they came up with. And then they, they come with, they basically debut uh, several of those stereotypes through the article. One that was interesting to me, that 51% uh, of Republicans would consider themselves evangelical Christians, where 38% of Democrats would describe themselves as evangelical Christians, which was surprising to me that I think from the stereotype, you would think that the divide would have been much greater than that. <clears throat> One interesting statistic about Christianity that I think that we, we forget is that America only represents 11% of all Christians in the United States, in the world. We're only 11%. So, this, you know, this idea that, that Christians are Southerners who, who hate Obama and all this kind of, kind of stuff, you know, 11%. And you know what? A mass, the vast majority of that 11%, they don't even know the words to Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> Believe me, I'm from the West Coast. You know, I... It, it is a religious experience when, you, uh, when that starts playing here in the South. 
So that, but that's, that's what is perpetrated that, that, you know what, that, you know, Christians are, you know, these ignorant hicks who, who, you know, cling to their guns and their Bibles and all of these kind of different things. And it's a stereotype. I often love, I love E3 because I think E3 looks a lot like heaven in, in the sense that we, we have liberals, we have conservatives, we have African-Americans, we have, you know, Southerners, we have uh, all sorts of different people. What? Californians, yes, Californians, Canadians. There's a Canadian here somewhere. There she is. So all over the place. We even let the Canadians here. <laughs> and I think that we have a unique situation here that, that, that we come together as people who are focusing on the heart and mind of God, and we're able to put in perspective that our paths are different toward that. Number two... The second stage of persecution is justifying disdain or hatred for a group. And this is done a lot by pointing out the atrocities of a group. Now, what are some of the atrocities of the Christian faith over uh, the past 2,000 years? Crusades, Spanish Inquisition. Anything else? Catholic priests. Catholic priests, okay. Repression of scientific knowledge. These are, these are some of the things that people put out there to, to grow a disdain or hatred for a group. That, that jokes are made and, and things like that. And, and, it, and it happens, it's happened with the Poles. It's happened with the Jews. It's happened with... Uh, uh, people of color. It's happened with people who uh, have different understandings of, of God's uh, plan for sexuality. That, that this isolation of, of people and disdain for a group. And this is what people do, that, that, that they say, oh, you're a Christian. Well, you know, what about the Crusades? Well, what about them? Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it's one of the darkest periods of, of the Christian faith of people missing the point. What about the Spanish Inquisition? It's like, what about Jesus? What about all the people Jesus healed? What about all the people that the church feeds and heals and loves and all of these things? And it's like, no, 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 no. We want to focus on these parts of when human, humans were acting like humans in the name of religion, and not acting as followers of Christ. The third stage is marginalize. And this happens all the time that, that marginalization and marginalizing Christians' place in society. That, that Christians have, should have no voice in what society should look like that that we should be isolated. Chris, Chris Matthews recently uh, tweeted this. If you're a politician and believe in God first, that's all good. Just don't run for government office. 
run for church office. Or Mike Dickinson, who uh, is running for a House seat in Virginia, tweeted this. I say it proudly. Want to decimate the Tea Party, the NRA, Bible thumpers, and Fox News zombies? Vote for me. Maybe you just punched a ticket to vote, right? So this is, this is the idea of perpetuating that, that Christians don't have a place in the civil discourse of, of what happens in society. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. I'm just saying that historically, these are the stages of persecution. This is what happened to the Jews. This is what happened to the Poles. This is what happened to the Armenians. This is how it happens. And we need to know about that. The fourth stage is actually criminalization of adherence to beliefs. And this, this looks all sorts of, of different ways. And this is where the Catholic Church is really on the forefront because of all the Catholic charities and all of the Catholic hospitals and, and things like that. And if you follow the news, you know that the Catholic Church has all sorts of lawsuits uh, trying to protect their right to... Uh, 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 not give the morning after pill and, and, and different things like this. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, but these, this is a, a, a segment, the Catholics held belief system that, that life starts in the womb. It's also my belief as well. And, and that they look at that and say, you know what, it is against our religious beliefs to engage in such behavior and that there is a systematic uh, stepping toward eroding religious freedoms, at least for the Catholic Church and, and for others. Also, and you can agree or disagree with this, but several branches of the Catholic Charities have been decertified from, from doing adoptions for the reason that they will not place babies with gay couples. Now, you can think that's wrong or right, but the reality is that, that these charities are, are being criminalized, or at least they're... they're they're not being, they're taking their way, their authorization to engage in civil, in civil society by taking away their rights. Number state are, and this can look as easily as, as what happened in World War II, that when the SS forced Jews to eat pork on Yom Kippur. Again, it, it it may look like adoption or, or forcing priests or, or pastors to perform weddings that they're not comfortable with or don't believe in. And it can be as simple as making Jews eat pork on Yom Kippur. It is forcing someone to go against their deep-held religious beliefs. Stage five is open oppression. Stage five is when uh, 
when finally all pretense is, is put aside and uh, for, for the Jews it was wearing a Star of David when they were in public. <clears throat> for, for the Christians uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in Syria and Iraq, it's, it's houses being tagged with the noon. that these are the stages to identify them for open persecution. And then the final stage and the most egregious stage is, is genocide. And coming to the point where you convert or you die. Or you give up your beliefs or you die. 60 Minutes last month ran a 13-minute and something second uh, segment on the persecution that's happening uh, by ISIS to Christians in, in, in the Middle East. And I've already posted the link if you want to watch it, but it's very, very powerful. And one of the really interesting things to me is the lack of coverage that that persecution is getting worldwide persecution of Christians here in America. It's egregious, it's real, and it is happening globally. That hundreds of thousands of Christians have been forced to leave the birthplace of Christianity and flee with five minutes to grab just a couple of things. Others have been forced to convert or die. That we know, maybe you've seen them or not, the beheadings of, of Christians. That the, in Nigeria, uh, Christian girls being taken and being brought into uh, extreme Islamic camps and forced to convert. And I think it is paramount that we understand that we are not there here in America, but that doesn't mean that it could never come here. And it doesn't mean that because it's not happening here, it doesn't matter. Because it matters to God. And we are part of the body of Christ. And we are told when one part of the body of Christ is hurting, then we are all hurting. And we need to hurt. Uh, there's a part of the Bible uh, that isn't in the canon. It's called the Apocrypha, and it's in the, in the Catholic uh, Bible. And, and uh, uh, Protestants is we are, uh, don't consider it part of uh, Scripture, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. And in the wisdom of Solomon, I wanted to share with you some thoughts on how people think about persecution. <clears throat> wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Let us oppress the righteous poor man. Let us not spare the widow or regard the gray hairs of the aged. But let our might be our law of right. 
for what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us lie and wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of <clears throat> sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to, uh, he became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteousness happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true. And let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him. And he will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insults and torture, so that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Persecution is nothing new. It has been happening since the beginning of the world. And in a large sense, those of us who are followers of Christ should be against all persecution. Whenever we see it happening, we should be advocates And voices of Jesus, voices of shalom, voices of peace. But also that ratchets up when we can see our fellow brothers and sisters being slaughtered and being brought into horrific circumstances that we should be on our knees in prayer that we should be voices to, to end the violence and end the persecution. And ultimately, we should never be so prideful and arrogant to believe that it will never happen to us. Martin Neimer, Neimoller said this, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. We are to be people of righteousness. To, we are people who create an environment for people to experience a right relationship with God and right relationship with people. That is our high calling. 
but also with that high calling, we know we will be persecuted at some level. As Jesus said, the world hated me first. And the world will hate us because our ideas, our beliefs are inverted to theirs. And it is incumbent upon us to stand up and to speak where we have voices for the justice, the righteousness of others. Ultimately, I want to finish with Isaiah 40 because whenever I feel like I am walking into a task or being called into a task that is larger than myself, that, that is as large as God is, And I wonder how it's all going to happen. I like to read Isaiah 40. And you may, I I know I ask you guys sometimes, you may want to do this uh, to close your eyes. You don't have to, but if you'd like to, I'd like to read this scripture to you. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or how has or has weighted the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. There are nothing more, they are nothing more than dust of the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it was a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forests and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can can he ever be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they may at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the word that he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent for them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them to nothing. They heartily get started, barely taking root when he blows on them and they all wither. The wind carries them like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up into the heavens who created all the stars. He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. 
O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say that God ignores your rights? Have you, ever, have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is everlasting God, the creators of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall into exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on the wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. 